0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode 132 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are ushering in summer with this episode. We yes. have a lot to talk about.
1: Totally excited. It's great to be back together in the same room again, and hopefully this will be our norm going forward.
0: Yes, amen. So the first thing we want to do is congratulate Catherine. She is our episode 130 giveaway winner. Woo-hoo. Yay, Catherine. And we sent Catherine two books, but then we also let her choose her own adventure. (laughs) And um, she chose one book. It's called, it's one I've never heard of. It's called The Wolf in the Whale by Jordana Max Brodsky. And it's described, they say if you like American Gods by Neil Gaiman or Circe by Madeline Miller, you'll love this one. It's a sweeping tale of forbidden love and warring gods, where a young Inuit shaman and a Viking warrior become unwilling allies in a war that will determine the fate of the new world. Oh, that sounds really good. Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, and that that one was over
1: 400 pages, because that was the only requirement on picking (laughs) whatever book uh, the winner wanted was it had to be over 400 pages to go along with Sue Jackson's big book summer challenge.
0: Right. We're strong-arming people. Yes, we are. <laughs> so this book is 562 pages. So nice. she did well. All yes. right. Listener Susan let us know that her big book is War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy.
1: Oh, that is indeed a big book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know, you know, people talk about their white whale book and it's not Moby Dick, but it's in honor of Moby Dick, that big white whale book that you just haven't gotten to yet. Right. So so. I know War and Peace is a big one for people.
0: Yeah, and people are piping in on our Goodreads page on episode 131. Mm -hmm. Is that right? about what they're reading colleen said she's reading dune
1: yeah tina and colleen yep they're both reading dune i think it's a reread for colleen okay i'm not really yeah. sure you know that one's i wouldn't exactly call it my white whale but it is a book i eventually want to get to i remember my dad reading it when i was a little kid and really digging it it's on my mind to eventually read but i don't feel
0: a pressing need to do it yet well you've got other big books pressing yes ma'am <laughs> I think a lot of people are reading Dune right now because there's a new movie coming out, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the release got pushed back, if I'm not mistaken, because of the pandemic. So yeah, obviously Dune is kind of a cult classic. The big following is going to be really excited to watch that one.
0: Yeah, so get on that thread if you want and share your big summer reading throughout the summer. We would love to hear what people are reading.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, that would be on the 131 discussion on Goodreads.
0: So, Emily, what are you currently reading? I am reading Books Can Be Deceiving by Jen McKinley. We met Jen last night via Zoom. She is a trip. She has a lot of different series, and this is the first book in her Library Lovers series. And she spilled the beans last night that it's loosely based on Stony Creek, which is the town right next to Guilford.
1: Yeah, Stony Creek is a, a part
0: of Branford, technically, and it's a great little community. And I'm four chapters in, and it's hilarious. I mean, I can totally see it because she said that. So it's the town is named Briar Creek, not Stony Creek, and instead of the Thimble Islands... Which Chris and I can literally see out our windows. It, they're called the Thumb Islands. <laughs> <laughs> Go Jen, using those words. And Jen is or was—I don't know if she still is—a librarian. Yeah,
1: she definitely was. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think. She, I think she's writing full time now because she's written like a million books.
0: Yes, I started it, and the very opening scene is in a library. So of course, I was picturing the Willoughby Wallace Library, which is the beautiful library in Stony Creek, and. I'm really enjoying it. It's a cast of characters right away from the start. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And while I was looking up that series too, I'm definitely going to dive into that. One of the reviewers said it's a series that just keeps getting better and better.
0: Well, I was tempted, because people often say that, I was tempted to just like do something un-Emily-like and just dig in mid-series. But of course not. I downloaded the first book (laughs) in the series. (laughs) The upholder. Yes, that's right. (laughs) What are you reading?
1: <laughs> well, I did start reading Rebecca Harding Davis, A Life Among Riders by Sharon M. Harris. Last episode, I mentioned I'd be starting it, and I have, and I'm really enjoying it. I had a big, long, out-of-state Biblio adventure, and I did not get much reading done. Remember how you said, some vacations you do, some you don't? And I thought I would, but I didn't. Yeah, it it, You happens. know? I think my mom read more than I did this time. Yeah
0: yeah is there bitterness in your voice no not at all because it was a book i took her so
1: oh nice yeah lovely it's so bad that i can't remember the name but it was by chris hammer an australian writer and it was one of the big australian hits from just i think two summers ago set in a dusty dry rural community in australia and she didn't get into it like super fast But then once she hit a certain point, like, and it's a big, thick book, it's over 400 pages, she was done in no time at all and really liked it. So she'll be sending it back to me to read.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm also reading Homemade A Story of Grief, Groceries, Showing Up, and What We Make When We Make Dinner. This is by Liz Houck, and this just came out this week. Thank you to NetGalley for sending me an advanced reader copy. This is a memoir. Her father died, I wouldn't say unexpectedly, but from a very short illness. So maybe that is unexpectedly. He ran for years a home for youth that are in state care. So kids who might have been in and out of foster care, but then they end up in this home. He always had this dream of starting cooking classes with the boys. They're all boys that live there. Unfortunately, he died before he was able to do that. So Liz, as part of her process of grief and honoring her father, decides to start cooking dinner with the boys once a week. I'm about 25% in, and I really love it. I like her writing, It's so interesting how we break bread with people, we cook with people, often to build our friendships and to celebrate, but you also learn a lot when you cook. And these are boys who are their own family, they get along or they don't get along. And so to have this consistent person coming in, teaching them how to cook, and then sitting down to eat dinner with them is really fun to bear witness to.
1: Yeah, oh, that sounds
0: so lovely. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I I wanted to just read this one passage because it's also a father-daughter book. Chris, both of us, our fathers have passed away. Yeah, So I'm really finding that part just really heartwarming. And so there's a part where Liz is trying to figure out what to do in her life. And they're walking down the street together, she and her father. And she said, you know, she's kind of like asking the universe for an epiphany to know what to do. And he says, Your life is happening all around you, he continued in a tone I wasn't expecting. You have a job. You are surrounded by people who love you. If you think something needs to be changed, change it. That's up to you, not anyone else. Nobody's going to fix your life. It's your life. Do something or don't, but don't talk nonsense. (laughs) Thanks, dad. (laughs) Thanks, dad. Exactly. I was like, wow, dad advice. I remember that. (laughs) And also, it was just like no nonsense. And that's what she talks about with him. Like he is a no nonsense person, which you think if you're going to run a home for, you know, youth that have, you know, gotten into some trouble, maybe were incarcerated or whatever. Being no nonsense is a pretty good character trait, you know, Mm -hmm. really enjoying it more to come as I get deeper in.
1: Well, I'm re-listening to a book. No, that is not correct. I read the book the first time, and now I'm listening. So I'm technically not re-listening. I'm revisiting the book. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's Carol by Patricia Highsmith. It's narrated by Cassandra Campbell. The book was originally published as The Price of Salt by Claire Morgan in 1952, but due to its lesbian content, Patricia Highsmith used a pen name because it was revolting back then to discuss these issues. I think I read it as part of my Classics Club challenge, the Classics Club that's out there that encourages people to read classics. And I really enjoyed the book. It's kind of a weird book. It's about a 19-year-old woman named Therese who is working in a big department store. She's wanting a career as a set designer. She's 19, she's figuring out life and trying to get there and does have some connections and some possibilities coming up for a position. But here it is, it's the holiday season and she's working at this huge department store as a clerk and oh, glamorous, while well, she's older, she's in her early thirties. So <laughs> if you're 19, she's older. If you're 55, she's a baby. Um, <laughs> comes in very, you know, sounds very sexy. She's dressed impeccably, wealthy, and the story kind of takes off from there. It's a novel of discovery in a lot of ways. You know, both women are trapped. Carol, who is the older woman, is getting divorced and trapped in this marriage. And then there's Therese, who's kind of trapped in her position right now. And, and you know how it is being a young person on your own. She is technically not orphaned, but she was raised in a Catholic home for girls So she is pretty much on her own and trying to make it on her own. And it's just scary in general. And then to fall in love with another woman in the late 40s, early 50s, terrifying. Yeah, And it's loosely based on Patricia Highsmith's an experience she had, which I keep, every time I come across a book, I think, I need to look that up. So maybe this time I'll actually get around to looking it up, because I am curious to know more. And wasn't
0: it recently made into a movie?
1: Yes, it was. Yeah, it was made into a movie, and it was... um, They changed the title to Carol, I guess because of the movie. That I don't know definitively why. I like The Price of Salt Mm -hmm. as a title a lot more, but maybe they just didn't want to confuse people. I think most people are confused anyway by who wrote it. Was it this Claire person or Patricia Highsmith? So anyway, I was looking for another audiobook to listen to and saw that one when I was on my road trip and thought, oh yeah, I'd like to revisit that book. Again, that is Carol or The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith.
0: Very good.
1: Okay, so I did start another book. I'm just a couple chapters in. It's The Plot
0: by Jean hanf Korlitz. Just came out in May. Did you read it? No, but that book is everywhere. Okay. Like I know Kate read it, and our friend Ryan read it, and yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: So I saw it on NetGalley, and I, well, I was
0: actually going through my
1: e-reader because I'm I really need to catch up on my reviews that I've requested. I do like to try and follow through on that. I thought I'd give it a try, and I am enjoying it. The storyline is a teacher he he's teaching creative writing at this annual workshop. His first novel was a huge hit and he hasn't been able to regain that. His novels since then have been flops, and so he's considering himself a washed-up novelist, and he resents having to do this teaching gig but pays the rent kind of situation. And one of his students, who's a good writer, and most of them, I guess, are not, he talks about how he resents having to read these pamphlets or their portfolios because they all pretty much are not good, but there is a writer who is good and talented who dies oh. and he takes the manuscript and passes it as his own. So it's considered a literary thriller. And I don't think what I just said was a spoiler because it's what I read, I think, on Goodreads as part of the plot synopsis, but you know how those are too. Sometimes they do give spoilers yeah. and you think, what? Don't tell me that. Yes, totally. yeah.
0: Well, the title is compelling. I mean, the title definitely, for some reason to me, makes it seem like Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, the plot. <laughs> I am reading it in spite of the fact that Stephen King blurbed it. <laughs> he called it insanely readable. I love Stephen King's books, but I don't trust his blurbing.
0: He's, um, he, he's blurb heavy. Yeah. What we yeah, should say? he's
1: blurb heavy and he's misled me. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, it's off to a great start and that's my ebook, Read.
0: So, what did you just read, Chris?
1: Well, I just read an audiobook of a book i had read in paperback
0: <laughs> <laughs> she's getting her story straight
1: <laughs> yeah so when i was making my return drive from chicago back to connecticut i didn't know if i wanted to start another audio book or if i wanted to listen to podcasts on the way there i really didn't listen to anything i just let my mind go and i was taking some back roads here and there too so i did need to kind of pay attention to road signs and whatnot so I chose on the way back to re-listen to a book, which on vacations I've often done that. I'll take a book to reread. so I have my daily reading, but I'm not so engrossed in a novel that I neglect my family or
0: my friends that I might be with. Oh, yeah. you are such a better person than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm on vacation. You're going to see me with a book in my face.
1: <laughs> well, so I decided to... Just kind of scroll through, and I landed on Riding Down the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within by Natalie Goldberg. And this is a writing book that came out in 1986. It was the first non-academic writing book I'd ever read. And I actually read it in grad school for a writing class that was trying to expose students to all different types of writing from memoir to fiction to different types of nonfiction. So it was a really well-rounded course, and we read it for that class. It was a really groundbreaking book at the time. Talk about freeing the writer within. It's all about getting words on the page. It's all about filling the page. This is not a craft book. It's a motivational book. It's a permission book to give yourself that permission to write. This audio version was Natalie Goldberg reading it, and it was a, an anniversary edition. It was like the 15th anniversary or something like that. So she reads it, but then she also comments on what she had written back then. And it's really funny, because I think she was 35 or 36 when she wrote it, and then still so she was like 50 when she was reading it. And she'll say, like, oh, look at my 36-year-old self. Like I was really wise. <laughs> or she'll say, yeah, I don't believe that, or something. And she's really funny, because she's Jewish, and she's from New York originally. And in the preface, she says, You're going to listen to my nagging Jewish voice tell you, get your butt in the chair and write. And so it was kind of the perfect book to listen to coming from the Midwest, back east, to hear her wonderful voice in my ears and to revisit her knowledge and her inspiration was just such a treat. Really wonderful. And then at the end of the audiobook, there is an interview. And I couldn't find the name of the woman who was doing the interview with Natalie Goldberg, but that was really interesting, too, because Natalie Goldberg is a practitioner of Zen Buddhism. She started the Zen practice the same time she started her writing practice, and she also paints and so she talked about how these three
0: things just go together. She couldn't not do one and the others. So was that in the book? You're saying that was in the enhanced part of the audiobook, or when she was writing, did she talk about those practices as well? I mean the Zen is a huge part of the book, okay. from what I remember. I
1: don't really remember her talking about painting, but it could be in there. But like it was in the nineties, the mid nineties when I read the book. Okay. And really enjoyed it. Again, that was writing Down the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within by Natalie Goldberg. It was a special anniversary audio book. I recommend that audio recording and also the book. If you want to write, I think it's just so powerful and encouraging just to help you get your
0: butt in the chair writing. Yeah, that's going to go on my list. I finished a book called The Last Romantics. This is a book I picked up at the Guilford Library sale. I feel very late to the party on this one. I remember when it was out first. I want to say it published. Let me look. Copyright 2019. So it's out in paperback now. Oh, I loved this book so much. It's the story of four siblings, Renee, Carolyn, Joe, Fiona, And I just said those in birth order. So Fiona's the baby, and it's told from her perspective. The premise of the story is that their father dies very unexpectedly at the age of 34. And so they're now being raised by their single mother who goes into a deep depression. The kids refer to this time period as the pause which I thought was such an interesting term. And it goes on for years. It's not like a couple months that she was depressed. And so they really have to fend for themselves. And Renee, the oldest, becomes their caretaker. And as does the neighborhood and friends in the neighborhood and some babysitters of other kids in the neighborhood. It's a story about that, grief, losing their father. But then it's also the story about grief about losing a sibling, And I don't want to spoil, obviously, what happens. So it's a book about a lot of death. So if that's a trigger for you, that's I would avoid it as a reader. But I thought it was beautifully written. I'm the youngest of four. There are two boys and two girls in my family. But I really identified with the role of the youngest. And it didn't surprise me that she used the youngest as the narrator. Because I'm looking across the table at another (laughs) youngest. And I feel like... We are kind of the observers of our family. Yeah, for sure.
1: Right? Yeah, I know my family members are always like, I can't believe you remember that. And it's just like, I remember a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big difference.
0: Well, it's funny because I consider my sister to be the sage who remembers all the details of our childhood. And she remembers them so perfectly that I could never question, you know, because I don't remember. So... But I think as the baby, you observe, you know, from the day you're born, you are the audience to all of your siblings. So the book takes place at the beginning. The very first chapter is the year 2079. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really shocked me when I first saw that number. I didn't see that coming. No. And Fiona is, at this point, a very renowned poet, and she's quite old. She wrote a famous poem, and as the book reveals itself you understand the poem that she wrote and the meaning it's fascinating the way the author did this the title the last romantics refers to a blog that fiona keeps as an early 20 something year old that is about her sexual escapades as a young woman which her brother is horrified (laughs) by i might add So there's a few chapters sprinkled throughout that are the year 2079. And then their father dies in the spring of 1981. So it stretches from 81 through. I loved it. I was so eager to pick this book up when I had a chance to read. I highly recommend it. Again, it's called The Last Romantics by Tara Conklin. And for people who recognize her name, she also wrote that book, The House Girl, which I remember the cover and was very popular as well. Mm. Yeah, this is her second book, I think. Well, that's yeah. really intriguing. Yeah. I think Jim kind of looked at me cross-eyed when I bought it, as if I don't have enough books, you know? But then I did get to it right away, so I'm proud of myself for that.
1: <laughs> uh, I was going to say, yeah, pat yourself on the back for that, because those library sales are so tempting, and you come home with the stack, or even just one, and then it goes on your other stack. And, right. Yeah.
0: Exactly, but this one rose to the top, so... <laughs> Chris, tell us about your big couple weeks of Biblio adventuring.
1: Oh, man, I had such a great time. I went to Chicago. I drove by myself from Connecticut to Chicago. I love driving. I really do. It just soothes my soul. It exposes me to new things. And so I do get off the interstate when I can and take highway roads, you know, state roads and, and stuff. So I did some of that through Pennsylvania which is just beautiful. I did take 2 days. You know, I know some people power through, but I like to take 2 days and have the time. Now that I can afford a hotel room, you know, it's different when I was younger and yeah. had to <laughs> drive straight through from like Reno to Charlotte or something or sleep in your car. Exactly. Been there, done that. Um yeah, so so the main mission was to see my mom because we hadn't seen each other since pre-pandemic days and so it was really great to see her. We went to Loyola Lakeshore Campus, which is where I'd gone to college and where my mom also worked for Loyola. So we went to check out the campus and see the changes, which it's changed so much. It's just, it looks like a different place, really. They've done a great job. It looks, now it looks more like an intentional college. When I went, there were ugly 1960s buildings that were just horrendous looking. They tore one of the big ones down, thankfully. But it, yeah, it has more of a central area now. They've done a great job with the campus. So that was a lot of fun to do that. And then we went to the Newberry Library, which is one of my favorite places and my mom's too. Anytime I go back or even when I lived there, we would usually try and catch their new exhibit that they have going on. So we did make it there. Their new exhibit is called Viva La Libertad, Latin America in the Age of Revolutions. A really fascinating exhibit. And it's part of an ongoing series that they're going to be having. That's a joint partnership with Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, the National Museum of Mexican Art, Illinois Humanities, and Instituto Justice and Leadership Academy. So, a lot of events coming up, and they're online. And we can put a link to the main page so people can catch some of those. And then, of course, I hit the bookstore. The Newberry Library has a great bookstore, and I had they're, they're online, too, and I had been eyeballing their books uh, a couple weeks before
0: I actually went. So oh, that, my God. I love you. <laughs> so you knew you were going, so you went to the bookstore website, so you were prepared. I
1: was prepared. And then if we didn't make it there, I would be able to order them, yes. right? So the two books that I knew I wanted to get, the first one is Queer Legacies, Stories from Chicago's LGBTQ Archives, by John D'Amelio. I read one of the essays so far. It's really, really cool. This is from, I guess, University of Chicago Press. There is a gay and lesbian archives in Chicago, and I had been a card-carrying member when I lived there. It's archives and also a library where you can check out books. And this is a newer book. Yeah, 2020, University of Chicago Press. Super looking forward to reading more of this. And then I also picked up Chicago Renaissance, Literature and Art in the Midwest Metropolis. This is by Liesl Olson. Super looking forward to this one, too. This is a newer book as well. It's in hardcover. It says Yale on the outside. Yeah, it was Yale University (laughs) Press, which made me chuckle. 2017 is when this one was published. It has this cool map at the very beginning of Chicago and the surrounding areas. Cicero, Stickney-Berwin. That was my location of my youth. And then I picked up, and I wasn't planning on this, but during my browsing, it's The Selected Poems of Gwendolyn Brooks.
0: Oh, right on. Yeah,
1: and talking to the bookseller, she's like, oh my God, I'm so glad you found that, because that was on the table where she tries to you know, slip things that she wants people to read. <laughs> um, so that was fun. So the exhibit was really cool. I should back up and say, on my way, one of the reasons I stopped where I stopped on the drive there was Washington, Pennsylvania, which is where Rebecca Harding Davis was born. I was super excited to see that since I'm reading the biography. And then just down the road from that, I went to Wheeling, West Virginia, which is where Rebecca Harding Davis grew up for the most part and lived until she was married and then moved east. So it's really cool to see those locations. And then, and this is the big event, right, for the road trip. I stopped in Yellow Springs, Ohio, where I got to see the birthplace of Emily Fine. <laughs> Blink and you'll miss it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yellow Springs is 1.9 miles long.
1: <laughs> yes, and I had the most fabulous tour guide, Shirley Kaywood. Oh my God, it was so much fun to meet her in person. I mean, I felt like I knew her already, so, but it's just so much fun to see her in the flesh. And we sat and we had coffee and chatted for a while, and then she toured me around. We walked to the library where Shuli worked for a couple of years, we saw Emily's childhood home, and then the house that you bought as an adult and where you raised your kids. So it was just so much fun to walk around town and see everything and, and meet Shuli. And I took a picture with a woman who we ran into who was like, "Oh my God, Emily Fine!" You know, because <laughs> Shuli said, "This is Chris." She does a podcast with Emily, so I sent Emily a picture of me with a woman, and Emily wrote back, "She's like, oh, that's great." She's like. Just note, I'm going to know literally everyone you run into today.
0: (laughs) Although that was a little bit, you know, snobby because I haven't lived there in five years. I'm sure new people have moved to town. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone we ran into knew you. It's a small town, people. And I was born and raised there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my
1: gosh. It was really great. It was slightly raining a little bit, but so it was lovely to walk around with an umbrella and. Just such a cute town.
0: Vibrant. Yeah, it is. It's a very vibrant town for its size. It's quite reliant on tourism. Mm-hmm. It's got cool shops because of that and a small movie theater. And it's a very cool town. Yeah, it, really is. it
1: totally is. And another reading synchronicity, reading Natalie Goldberg's book, There's a part where she's in Yellow Springs because she's doing the Amherst Writers' Conference as a speaker. The Antioch. Antioch, oh, I'm sorry. Antioch Writers' Conference. Uh, She was there as an invited guest. There she is in Yellow Springs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people come to that town because of the college, Mm -hmm. which isn't so vibrant anymore, sadly, but it's trying. Yeah. I was wondering if you got to see when you went to the library, there's a beautiful mosaic on the front of the library. Did you notice that when you were there? I took a ton of pictures. What what really captured me
1: at the library was the statue with the books yeah. that looks like a tree with all the books. I took yeah. some great pictures that I'll definitely be posting on my blog. Yeah, that t-
0: was done by the sculptor John Hudson, who's a friend of mine. Yeah. Oh my
1: gosh, it's so good to know yeah. because we looked everywhere and we didn't see... Any marker on who created it? Oh, I'll send you his
0: um, his web address. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I was very glad that Kristen Shuley got to meet to remind people this is the author and poet Shuley K. Kaywood and teacher. We should say teacher. author, poet, teacher Shuly Kaywood, who's been on the podcast many times. Yeah. I was really happy. I was also so jealous. <laughs> I mean, if people saw me that day, they probably saw like a little bit of steam coming out of my ears or something. <laughs> or maybe I had that green-eyed envy look on my face. I don't know. But I'm so glad you got to see it because you've heard endlessly about Yellow Springs. Yeah, so. yeah. no,
1: it was lovely to be there and you were definitely there in spirit with us.
0: Oh, thanks.
1: yeah. The other adventures, Mom and I went to one of my favorite places and, and she'd been there a couple times with me before it's the Mitsua Marketplace in Chicago. It's technically in Arlington Heights. The whole Chicago area is called Chicagoland. So when people say they're from Chicago, there's a good chance they're from technically the suburbs, but it's all considered Chicago. It's a Japanese market. They have a kick-ass grocery store, a food court with delicious stuff, and then a couple shops, including a Kino bookstore, stationery shop, which I love, 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 love. They did a big kind of remodel since the last time I was there. I went specifically looking for a journal that Laura loves, um, and they didn't have it in stock, but they're ordering some. Oh, cool. Yeah, she said, it's going nice. to take two
0: months, but they'll eventually
1: come. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't buy any books, but I did
0: buy some stationary supplies,
1: which were a lot of fun.
0: That's such a cool store. We've gone together to the one in New York. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they're all over, well, not totally all over but there are more than at least half a dozen around the country great stores they have a lot of manga if you're into that they Mm -hmm. have a lot of japanese language books and then they also carry current and classic books in english very cool yeah it's such a cool place so my trip back to chicago was fast and just really enjoyable you were right i didn't get that much time to read (laughs) (laughs) which surprised me. But it was just really fun to reconnect with mom. Yeah,
0: it's really nice. And you know, everyone I'm talking to, getting back out into public and doing these things, it's exhausting in a way, you know, we're out of practice. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you guys were able to keep busy. Yeah, we totally did. And you know, we did go into some places
1: and eat. So it was like my first time in restaurants and things like that. And even on the road, I'm, I'm happy to say most people were wearing their masks. Like Even at the rest stops, mm-hmm. those might have been the places where there were more people not wearing their masks than I've seen anywhere else, even though they said, please consider wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Most of the shops that we went into and restaurants and stuff, everyone was wearing their masks. Yeah. Which is a good, good. thing because yeah. you just, you know, you don't know yet still. And yeah. But yeah, fun, fun time. I'm so glad. Yeah.
0: Well, we had a really good time last night on a joint biblio adventure, couch biblio adventure, uh, I guess. Yeah, it was like a couch biblio adventure on steroids. Yes. That's a really good way <laughs> to say it. We hosted the Jungle Red Riders last night. All seven of them. All seven. Yeah.
1: And we weren't sure how that was going to go. I had a great time, and I think hopefully everyone did. And we're going to list the authors too. So it was Julia Spencer Fleming, Lucy Burdett, Hallie Efron, Reese Bowen, Hank Phillippe Ryan, Deborah Comby, and Jen McKinley. Wow. And we talked about writing a lot, like between them. I asked if they know how many books between them they've written. I mean, it has to be over 200
2: if oh, not more. Easily. I mean,
1: yeah, and they've won a lot of awards. A lot of awards. A lot of mystery awards, writing awards. Longtime listeners know Hank was on with us episode 125, no, 115. 115. She's an Emmy Award winner multiple times. Talk about a powerhouse
0: group of women. Yeah, and I think I said this on last episode, but I'll repeat it, that I did create a bookshop.org page with Each of them picked two of their books to highlight and feature on that page. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Once you click on one of the books, you can click on the author name. That's a hot link. And then it'll bring up all the books that bookshop.org carries of that author. And Hank saved me from myself, because I reached out to Hank and said, I'm going to make a bookshop.org page with all of their books. And she said, Emily, Reese has 50 books alone. Like, you don't want to do that. How about if I asked them each to choose two? I was like, <laughs> Hank, the voice of reason. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh, they're such good friends and you can tell they really love and support each other as writers
0: and as women. Yeah, and so the Jungle Reds, to remind people, they have a blog that they maintain. So that's one of the things they talked about is that they really communicate with each other every day Mm because there's seven of them and they post once a day. And one of the Reds is responsible for being the, quote, host of the blog in a week, which means they decide the subjects that they're going to post about or get the guests that they feature on the blog. But it's a really fun blog to follow, and their comments are really active.
1: Yeah, a lot of people follow the blog religiously and comment and talk amongst themselves. And it's jungleredriders.com. So super easy to remember. And we highly recommend that you check them out because their books are very diverse, too. You know, everything from suspense, thrillers, intense sex and violence to cozies where there's none of that. And you just get the sense of place and characters. So I just really like that, too, because I think sometimes groups of friends or... Writers that get together, they're all of a certain type. right? And granted, they're all mystery thriller writers, but you know there's so many sub-genres in that yeah. main genre. It's just really heartwarming to see such a great group. And what a brilliant idea to get together and to do a post a day like that and to have a group to take responsibility over that. And I've seen other cliques of writers try to do something like that, and they just don't
0: last. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they definitely have staying power. They do. Yeah. And we are going to put this video on our YouTube channel, YouTube page. Yeah. So keep your eye on social media for that. We'll probably put it in our next newsletter as well. So if you aren't subscribing to the newsletter, you might hop on board Just go to bookcougars.com and you'll see the tab to subscribe to the newsletter. We don't send you junk emails. We send you one newsletter a month. Yes, It's going to be a fun video. I'm not sure how well it will translate just to audio because it's so fun to see them and watch how they interact with each other. So get a chance to see it. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. I think it's much better on video probably to see everybody. Yeah. Yeah, And we want to thank the listeners and viewers who attended. We did ask everybody to shut their video off just so the focus could be on the seven jungle reds. And we thank
0: everyone for doing that. Yeah. And for their wonderful questions as well. It was really fun. So maybe we'll start doing a little bit more of this. I really had a good time. I did too. It was really fun. It was like just getting together with a bunch of friends. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they were all friends. We got to just, you know, (laughs) pretend for a night. (laughs) So what about any upcoming adventures?
1: You know, Emily, I don't have anything on the books right now other than sitting my butt in a chair and reading. Mm, That sounds lovely. Yeah,
0: I want to do that for a couple days. Yeah, you've earned it. I'm doing the opposite. I'm doing what Chris (laughs) just did. I am heading out to Colorado. So excited to see my kids. It's my daughter's 30th birthday. I have not seen my kids. This is the longest I've gone in their lifetimes without seeing them super excited. My son has moved to a new area that I've never visited way up in the mountains. I've looked and there's a bookstore in Aspen called Explore Booksellers. And it's over 40 years old, and it's in an old Victorian house. Oh, yummy. Yes, nooks and crannies galore. He doesn't live in Aspen, but he lives near Aspen. And then I also want to explore bookstores in the Basalt and Carbondale region. So if anybody out there knows about those, email us, please, or shoot us something on social media. And then I just heard today that Tattered Cover which is a bookstore in the Denver area that has several locations, their flagship store closed a while back. I remember reading about that. And it's just reopening this weekend. And it's not too far from the old flagship store that closed. The new one is not far. So what they're doing for the grand opening tomorrow is creating a bookworm of people. Over 100 people are going to stretch from store to store, they're going to pass a book. I don't know what the book is. I'm very curious to know how they're going to choose that from person to person. And when it gets to the final person, they'll open the door to the new store.
1: Oh, how lovely. Isn't that, cool?
0: that really is a great idea. Yeah. Wow. Of course I had to find out, Well, where is it? Because I love the old tattered cover, These for the flagship. And so it just happens to be 25 minutes from the airport. So I texted my kids right away. I was like, do you think 25 minutes after arrival is too soon to take Jim to a bookstore? <laughs> and Rachel's response was, Mom, he knows you well by yeah. this point. <laughs> he's, he's been broken in. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe I'll just bribe him with coffee. That always works. <laughs>
1: uh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to hear about it because I, I was at the old store many moons ago, so yeah. I look forward to hearing about the new one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess they've tried to do some things to replicate what it looks like inside, so I'm really curious. Lots of Colorado adventures to come. I'll report back on the next episode. But I hope you can post stuff, too, here and there oh, on try. social media. Yeah. Apparently, Jacob doesn't have very good Wi-Fi and telephone service, which I'm actually quite thrilled about, <laughs> because I, too, would like to get my butt in a chair and do some reading. So. Yeah. But I will, of course, when I can. So good. Yeah. Excellent.
1: Well, instead of talking about upcoming reads this time, well, this is upcoming reads in a way, but we're going to focus on some books that we both want
0: to get to over the summer. Indeed. And we invited our mystery man, John Valeri, to pipe in with three of his books that he's really looking forward to reading this summer. So give it a listen, and then we will be back with ours.
2: Hey, Book Cougars. This is John, your mystery man. I just wanted to call in with some books that I am anticipating reading this summer. I know that you are both participating in Sue Jackson's Big Summer Book Challenge, which is for books over 400 pages. So I am actually going to give you my first recommendation based off length. Uh, So June 1st sees the publication of Collateral Damage by Mark Shaw. He is an investigative reporter, former defense attorney, and I believe I spoke of him on one of your previous episodes. He has done groundbreaking work into the suspicious death of reporter Dorothy Kilgallen, who was looking into the JFK assassination, and his new book, Continues that, but he also is tying in the suspicious death of Marilyn Monroe, Robert Kennedy, and the JFK assassination. And this book comes in somewhere around 560 pages. I think it would be interesting for true crime fans. Second recommendation, which is a June 15th release, is actually a young adult recommendation. It is The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. I think that a lot of people. Uh, might know that name because she wrote the Truly Devious Trilogy, and this is actually a standalone novel, but it features the same protagonist, 17-year-old Stevie Bell, who is an amateur sleuth, and I'm reading this book right now, absolutely loving it, because not only does it remind me of the Nancy Drew books that I used to love, except it's a bit more progressive, diverse, inclusive, but it also sort of have the feel of those old horror movies, Sleepaway Camp Friday the thirteenth, because she is actually brought in to investigate a cold case for camp counselors who were murdered and for decades those deaths have remained unsolved and so she is on the case and this book has given me all the feels, all the old time Nancy Drew vibes, but for a new generation. And my final recommendation is Dark Roads by Chevy Stevens. It comes out August 3rd, and it's actually the first book that Chevy Stevens has published since, I believe, 2017. So she is... One of my favorite suspense writers, but I don't think I've talked about her on the show because she hasn't had anything new out in a couple of years. Uh, Some people may remember her from her debut novel, Still Missing, which was a big, big hit. I want to say back in 2011, and she has continued to write incredible and incredibly creepy books since then. So this one is Dark Roads. It takes place... On the Cold Creek Highway, which stretches several hundred miles through British Columbia, it's rugged wilderness uh, to the west coast, very isolated, very vast single women are always being told not to travel that stretch of land alone because that they tend to disappear creepy right so anyway my guess is that some people are again going to disappear on that stretch of land that dark road or dark roads and that book is set to come out on august 3rd and i have a feeling it's going to be creep so thank you so much for taking my recommendations and happy reading to everybody i hope you enjoy something dark and mysterious this summer
1: Okay. Well, so John, thank you so much for that. We look forward to checking in with you at the end of the summer. So our big book, Summer Reading Challenge Books, which we announced on the last episode, I'm going to be reading Bleak House by Charles Dickens. I'm going to be reading Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. And what we're going to do is create on Goodreads discussion threads for both of these books. So there'll be one for a buddy read with Chris and Bleak House, and one for a buddy read with Emily and Anna Karenina. So if you want to join in for both books, either book, please do. If you're reading other books and want to talk about them, please list those or talk about them on episode 131, which will be the summer reading discussion place. We're super excited about this. We're actually going to be taking a note from Jenny from Reading Envy and creating reading schedules to get through these books in a timely fashion and keep ourselves on task for bleak house we're going to read it in 21 days for Karenina,
0: which is much longer it's going to be about two months right i intend to start on july 1st and be finished by august 31st yeah and bleak
1: house will start july 1st as well and we just want to remind people to avoid spoilers Or if you do put a spoiler, I know there's a little thing you can click on Goodreads that there is a spoiler.
0: Right. Yeah. So it just kind of hides your comment and people have to click on that to open it. Yeah. So they don't accidentally read about, you know, the death of the main character or something right? Yeah, that you want to talk about. Yeah.
1: So like within that, whatever section it is for that, day you're welcome to, but yeah. Yeah. You know, their are books, they're old books, they're classics, but still they're right. new to every reader who first comes to them for the first time.
0: Yeah. And I am planning to do both audio and reading of Anna Karenina Once we get these threads set up, I will let you know what versions of each I'm reading and listening to.
1: Cool. And I just have to say, you know, I mentioned the Newberry Library earlier. I happen to be looking at their site because they do classes and their classes are online now, which is amazing because they're kick-ass classes. But they did do one on Bleak House a year or two ago. And it was so funny. They called it a variety show with a plot. (laughs) That's great. Isn't that great? (laughs) So that makes it sound less scary.
0: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, on audio... I'm planning to listen to What Happened to You. This is a book that's got two authors. It's Oprah Winfrey and Bruce D. Perry. And what they're doing with this is reframing a lot of the conversation around trauma, particularly early childhood trauma, where people used to say, what's wrong with you? Now they're trying to reframe that as what happened to you and understand it. And I'm super excited. I've been listening to them being interviewed quite a bit on different podcasts. And then the other one I want to listen to is On Writing by Stephen King. People have told me about this book over and over and over. It's ironic to me, like his whole thing is get your butt in a chair. And it's like, well, first I need to get my butt into reading this book, which I've had (laughs) queued up forever. So those are my two audios.
1: That's awesome. That's a good book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. I didn't even think about looking at
1: audios. Hmm. That's okay. More to come, I'm sure, on that. (laughs) Wow. so one of the books I'm reading is a copy that an author sent us a couple of years ago now, and I've been wanting to read it. I'm sorry I'm late to the party on this one, but it's called Books for Idle Hours, 19th Century Publishing and the Rise of Summer Reading by Donna Harrington Luker. And this is exactly what it sounds like. You know, the subtitle really describes it well. She talks about from, I think it was like maybe the 1870s to the early 19th century, is when the publishing industry really tried to figure out what to do during those slow summer months when they weren't getting any sales. So that's when they started pitching novels that were more, you know, lighter fare, so to say and that the preachers would rail against because they had tantalizing subject matter and they weren't serious literature. So I'm looking forward to digging into this one. People were wearing their bathing kits
0: or whatever they (laughs) called them back then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you another one. This is Great Plains by Ian Frazier. This is a book that I got off of the free table at our local public library here in Guilford. And it's one that I've wanted to read In the past and just never got around to. So I thought it was meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Jenny from Reading Envy is interested in maybe doing a buddy read with this because it's been on her list as well. That's
0: great. I'm super excited. I got an arc of Baking with Dory, sweet, salty, and simple. Dory Greenspan is a very revered baker. She's from Westbrook, Connecticut, which is right next door to us. So she often does back in the in real life days. She often does events where she cooks at RJ Julia Booksellers in Madison. I'm super excited to have an ARC of this. It comes out on October 19th this year. So thank you to NetGalley and Houghton Mifflin for doing that. What I did is I've got it on my iPad so that it's easier for me to see the recipes and all of that. And I'm just going to dip into it. So maybe I'll try to post pictures of things that I bake. Yum. Yes, please do. Yeah, I mean, she's written so many cookbooks, you kind of think, do you really have anything else to say? But what they're saying about this, and what they say about her in general is she's just not precious. Like her baking is very accessible to people, the ingredients are accessible. But she just thinks of a way to take, you know, like a common biscuit or something like that and add something cool to it, to make you look at it differently, mm-hmm. and have something new to bake. So super excited about that one.
1: Well, next up for me, I do want to read The Narrows by Ann Petrie. This is a book, we've mentioned it before on the podcast and definitely on a video when we went to see Ann's home in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. So this one, I'm not sure when I'll start it. If I'll start it before or after my big book, we'll see. a
0: great cover.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it is a really cool cover. So it's a kind of a little bit of a woman's face, and she has a white glove and she's reaching up to touch her, the net. You know, women used to wear those veil nets over their faces, you know, and there's a pearl earring. So it's quite tantalizing looking.
0: Yeah. Bright red lipstick. Yes. Well, I mentioned last week that my book club is reading Home by Marilyn Robinson. That's our August book. Read. I'm pretty sure. So I'm committed to reading Gilead first. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to go for it. I want to read all four. This is referred to as the Gilead series that Marilyn Robinson wrote. It all takes place in Gilead, Iowa. Gilead itself, the first book is called Gilead, is won the Pulitzer in 2005. And it's based on um, the story of John Ames, who's a preacher. And I know that he, he, the story is that he comes from a family of preachers, and it's a, very much a book about fathers and sons. That's all I really know about it. And I also do know that Oprah picked it as her big book club pick. And the newest in the series, so it's four parts. It's Gilead, Home, Lila, and Jack. And Jack just came out this year. Oh, wow. It really stretches, too. Her writing of this has been over a 15-year period. So I decided I'm just going to try to go for it and read all four. Nice. Good job. I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah. And I have been told that um, Gilead is a good audiobook also. So I might try it.
1: Excellent. Well, you mentioned she a Pulitzer. And I just looked up who the Pulitzer winner was because it was just announced a couple hours ago. um, And it looks like it's The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the other finalists, it was A Registry of My Passage Upon the Earth by Daniel Mason and then Telephone by Percival Everett. Wow.
0: Go Louise
1: Erdrich. Yeah. I like her. Have you read her? I have. I've. You know what? The only one that really sticks out is Tracks because mm. mm. I remember writing a really obnoxious graduate school <laughs> paper about it. God, so embarrassing. <laughs> Well,
0: you were young.
1: Yeah, and I knew everything back then.
0: <laughs> oh, As most young people do, Chris. It's okay. <laughs> well, congratulations to Louise Airdrich. I'm excited yeah. about that. Rachel's going to be excited. My daughter's a big Airdrich fan. Very cool. Cool.
1: Nice. Well, that's all for me. Do you have any others? Okay, I have two nonfiction books I brought along with me. The first is Creating Family Archives, a step-by-step guide for saving your memories for future generations, it's by Margaret Note. It's a book for lay people. You know, it's not for archivists necessarily. I have some family archive projects to do, one involving an aunt of Laura's, and then I just have so many of my own family things that I'm going to use them as practice this summer. I thought it would be fun to check out a book on how to do it. Yeah, that's um,
0: great.
1: More to come on that. And then the other book. You know, I'm talking about this today just maybe as a way of having a little accountability. So somebody ask me in a month how it's going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I will.
1: <laughs> this is the, um, the second edition of the Python Crash Course book, a hands-on, project-based introduction to programming. So it's Python, programming language. I know a little like HTML, just enough to break things. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've wanted to learn an actual programming language, and one of my friends, who's a programmer, said, "Just pick a language and go with it, because mm-hmm. one leads to another." And right. so, I went with Python because I heard that it's used in one of the library classes coming up. Oh, that's smart. We'll see how it goes. I figured it's a second edition; that's a good sign. <laughs> that
0: should, should see her <laughs> <your> face. <laughs> I vote for you, just putting it under your pillow and see if a little like nighttime osmosis works. Here's hoping. <laughs> I'm going to need help, but
1: yeah, but you know, I, I'm looking forward to it. But it does intimidate me.
0: Yeah, well, I'm
1: going to have some kind of project. Maybe I could do one of the archiving things and yeah. make a project around that. Because I came home with two of my mom's old photo albums. So I told her I was going to digitize the pictures. So maybe I can do
0: something like that. I feel like I should be offering some words of wisdom. (laughs) I I can't, but I will say I will check back with you. Thank you, Emily. I'm willing to be an accountability partner for this one. Thanks. I need it. (laughs) Wow. So good summer reading. We would love on our episode 132 Goodreads thread for you to pipe in and let us know if you have any summer reading goals or email us or reach out on social media, we really do love to hear what other people are reading. Yeah, we really do. It's so much
1: fun to hear, you know, whether it's a classic or new thing or something obscure.
0: Yeah, let us know. If you're reading to your kids or reading to your parents, you know, whatever, we just like to know. We're doing all the talking, we want to know what other people (laughs) have to say. Speaking of other people coming up, we have a fantastic interview with Gina The editor of the book of flash nonfiction essays called fast funny women really great book of essays really great interview yeah so much fun talking with gina and those essays are really
1: great i'm still dipping around in them me too and just so they're inspiring and funny and some of them are like oh
0: my god been there done that yeah and such an interesting group of women, <laughs> mm-hmm. from Judge Judy, who we found out Gina grew up next door to, <laughs> to Gina herself, and students that she had at UConn. I mean, just a really interesting cast of characters, yeah, is it? Yeah, a lot of great diversity. Maybe I shouldn't say cast of characters.
1: Oh, I think they
0: are. Okay. <laughs> I think
1: that's I think that's safe. Okay. You know, my wise teacher, Shirley Kaywood, in the memoir class I'm taking with her, reminded people that you're a character, and the people you write about in your memoir, they're characters. And a collection of books, a collection of nonfiction essays, they're, they're characters. Yeah, I think that's, I that's safe true. Yeah, safe you're to a character
0: say. in your own life. Yeah, good point.
1: Yeah, right. You write your own damn
0: story. That's right. Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the interview with Gina. Happy reading, everybody.
1: We're here today to talk with Dr. Regina Bareka about her new collection of essays, Fast Funny Women, 75 Essays of Flash Nonfiction. I started it this morning and found it compulsively readable. Gina teaches literature and feminist theory at the University of Connecticut, where she's been the winner of UConn's highest award for excellence in teaching. Wikipedia describes Gina as an American academic and humorist, two words that don't often come together, But even the joining of these two nouns is enough to make people smile. Gina is the author or editor of over 20 books, and her weekly articles from the Hartford Current are syndicated nationally. Gina's work has also appeared in the New York Times, the Independent of London, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Cosmopolitan, and the Harvard Business Review. She's an honoree of the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame, and we're honored to have her here with us today. Welcome, Gina. Thank
3: you
0: so much. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you both. Thank you, Gina. I've been reading this a little bit at a time. I've had it just on my nightstand and some of them are laugh out loud. Some of them are so poignant. Can you tell us how this came to be? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, Fast
3: Funny Women, which is a collection of 75 pieces of nonfiction, uh, by women writers, uh, was actually, you know, some, as I say in the introduction, sometimes the muse is male. It's actually a former student of mine from UConn where I've been teaching for, uh, since 1987. So we are talking 34 years. And, um, so that's a lot of students. If I've got, you know, um, maybe 125 students a year, especially towards the sort of the beginning when I was teaching the bigger classes. That's a lot of students out there and and all of them were wonderful. And then some of them turned out actually to sort of go into the same business. And a young man named David Legere came by. They they come by, they visit the office. Now that I'm a board of trustees, distinguished professorship, my office is in the basement next to the toilets and the candy machine, which is where it's always been. But I'm underground. I look up my window and see feet. Um, I used to live on Lafayette Street in New York City and on the Lower East Side when I was in graduate school. And I had a garden apartment, which meant you saw feet above you. It's the same office at UConn, but it's, it's a big office. And it's like, it's like the, you know, if, if people could see, it's like a bodega. Um, and, and a piñata and a toy store and a kitchen all together. <laughs> um, I always said my students. I was, so even after they graduate 10, 15, 20 years, they come back. So Dave was coming back. He was going to be on campus. And he said, let me, you know, let's have coffee. So he came to the office. I made coffee girl or ordered food. And he said he was starting a new publishing company with two friends of his and based in Connecticut and called Woodhall Press. And would I be interested in doing a book of women's humor. Now, I've done the Penguin Book of Women's Humor. I did the Signet Book of American Humor, um, two editions. I've done a lot of things for big presses. But this was going to be a smaller, absolutely independently done version of this. And I thought, yes i mean, think was my first you know answer to most of life when i'm not running screaming away screaming no over <laughs> my shoulder which again took me a while to do but i said yes because i knew dave and the new small press would give me the independence to really do what I saw as, as put together this sort of community, this coven, this group of women who I knew were uh, remarkable. This was all before the pandemic. So I had no idea that this was going to become a source of, of delight and strength and a real sense of community during the past year. And so I started um, I think the way, it's the way that malls are put together. I got a few anchor writers, like you get your anchor stores. And so Marge Piercy, um, all of the women who wrote for this wrote original pieces. So Marge Piercy, who I had grown up reading, you must know her work, right? I mean, so she contributed something original. Uh, Jane Smiley, Pulitzer Prize winner Jane Smiley, Faye Weldon, who is a friend who wrote Upstairs, Downstairs. She's the one that made all of us start watching um, Masterpiece Theater. She wrote the uh, pilot episode to Upstairs, Downstairs in 47 novels. And she said yes. So I grew up next door to Judge Judy. So Judge Judy is in the book. Judy <laughs> I Schneider. was wondering
0: how that one came <laughs> to
3: Yeah, because yeah, you, you have all these, right? You know, Marge Piercy, Faye Weldon, you know, and then. Judge Judy. Judy was my next door neighbor. She was older than me. She looks way better than I do. And I said, Judy, you want to be there? And she actually mentions the fact that her um, her dad was our dentist. She was the smart girl on the block. She was I was the first of my, my uh, women in my family to go to college uh, or to graduate from high school in a timely fashion. But Judy was the one, she was the dentist's daughter, and she went to college. It was like a big deal, so she was, you know, like a heroine. And we always kept in touch. When she was a family court judge in New York, I'd go down and, and, and meet her in Brooklyn. And, you know, she was always fascinated. Now she's become this, you know... Thing. Astonishing. But we still keep in touch. And the two of us, if we sit down at a table together, or our husbands sit next to each other, Jerry will sit next to my husband, Michael. And like, are they actually getting they're getting louder, aren't they? And we become increasingly Brooklyn. It's like, what do you mean your cousin did that? Your cousin never did that. And I'm like, it's my cousin. I know. I know we locked his wife in the garage. I, mean, I don't think he would have done that. I it was a nice guy. I said, I don't care. It's a nice guy. He locked her in the, in the car. So we're yelling at like the you know, the four seasons or something and we sound like a couple of fishwives, and the husbands are <laughs> going of have another martini. So I'm yeah. Yes. We're with them. Please don't <laughs> hold it against us. So, um, and then I wanted to also make sure that there were writers who were emerging writers, people who, whatever their ages, there are people who are 75 and it's the first piece they've had published. There are women who are 19 is the first piece that they have published. Uh, there are women from um, otherwise uh, marginalized communities who have uh, trouble having their voices being heard. There are, you know, there are people who fall in love. Some of them fall in love with other women. Some of them fall in love with their kids because they never knew that motherhood was going to be like this. Some of them fall, you know, out of love with whoever they're with, and that becomes their funny story. So people really took the idea of what I wanted for Fast Funny Women was for each short, they're all under 750 words. And that's why they it's a book to keep, you know, next to your night table, you know, in the bathroom, next to where you're making coffee, in the car, because so many of our lives are done in bits and pieces. And each one of these is self-contained. It's like like a tiny Kit Kat. You know, it's like the... Mm-hmm, the, yeah, the, the, the mini bar. Size, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> But that um, they all had to be complete. They're, they're not parts of longer pieces. Uh, all of them had to tell the story, you know, like an egg. itself enclosed And that I asked everybody to hold a mirror up to life, except it had to be a compact mirror.
0: Mm-hmm. And oh, that's, that's a
3: great way of saying That's a great analogy, that. yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the writers took seriously. So that's my long
1: answer. But it's- Oh, that's great. Thank you for that. And, you know, I have to say one of the things I like about flash nonfiction or, or even flash fiction is that, it is so short and to the point. And for me, it causes me to have even more reflection after I finish it, because sometimes with the longer piece, there's so much that, you know, you think, oh, that was really great. And, and then I kind of move on. But there's just something so
3: poignant about flash nonfiction. Thank you. I, I do think that for many of these writers, you know, uh, several of them are, like I said, they're novelists. And it was a challenge For them, you know, it's like you sign on, you make a pact with me. And there were people, very uh, distinguished writers, and they were sending uh, pieces that were 1,002 words. And I'm going... I'm not cutting your prose because I couldn't live with myself, but you have to make this under 750 words. So to say that to some of the people here where I felt I was like, oh my God, I'm losing 300 of her words, but everybody had to abide by the same rules. Precisely that idea because it's the short, fast take Right. An idea or a moment or an emotion or, you know, a recognition. And it's not the long, luxurious, languorous sort of where you keep the 300 characters in your head and, and you're waiting for the return of something. It is, it's that flash. And, and I believe, you know, I, sh- I should know this, especially given my day job, but I don't know, um, actually where the term, uh, flash was first used as opposed to this. But I think that, You know, it's like a flash bulb or something or something that comes to you in a flash, but it is capturing the essentials of that moment. And then, as you said, allowing for reflection later, you go back and you look at it and you see things captured in that one frame that,
0: you know, a a movie is different from
3: looking at a photograph.
0: Well, I also think for me, you know, I'm not I don't love detail. I'm not someone that enjoys, you know, five pages to describe a stop sign, you know, like cut to the chase. I'm more plot driven (laughs) reader. And so I like it because of the urgency of them. Like, tell me your story. Tell me what you have to say. And I find them really lovely little nuggets. And I love how as you're reading through these, and I didn't read them which long-time listeners will be surprised by this because I talk about with short story collections how I often pick up the book and just read it from page one to the end. But with this, I read the bios in the back, which are great. I mean, those are little stories in and of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And then I would read about someone and say, oh, I want to know what she has to say, you know? And then I would go up to the front and look at the index and find the story. I mean, I just love the way it's laid out. So oh. I wanted to ask you, with the with the contributors, did you ask them all to submit their own bios? Yes, they all submitted
3: their own bios. Again, it had to be, I, I believe that was 100 or 120 words. So if you notice in the back, it's sort of like going through a catalog. Yeah. Uh, and some of the pieces, they seem surprising to be written by the people who wrote them.
0: Yes, I agree.
3: So Harriet Estroff-Murano, who is the uh, executive editor of Psychology Today, is the one who's writing about that she never lost her virginity uh, because it wasn't something to lose. It's not an item. Uh, she gave it away, but she didn't lose it. Nobody took it. And it's this very sort of hip voice. And then, you know, Harrow is a woman who is uh, is my age and I consider, I'm 64. So I consider my age to be anybody who's too old for work study and too young for cremation. So, (laughs) Harris, a lot of women who look my age, and um, but you know, it was sort of surprising. And then there's a a, one of the ones that people seem to really love is by a a writer named Chrissy Dolce, who teaches at a girls' school, and she just records these tiny snippets of dialogue with her students, and she drew
0: or she used an image. It's it's such a great image. This one really surprised me. This one with Michelle Carter. Yeah, like the, the picture she posted is this loving, adoring picture. And then her essays about being asexual. Absolutely asexual, but she, about Which,
3: being married. Right, yeah. Her partner in life, they adore each other. They actually got married this summer. She's married now. I had no idea. Michelle, um, again, was Sister Divine quite some time ago. And she was always a good writer. And I kept her assigning them stuff my whole life, I said, choose your topic. And her essay on asexuality. I think it's the most, first of all, just such a, such a smart discussion of it for those of us who don't know that Right. But ways of showing deep, intense and intimate love, just not sexual. And like you, I adore you. So you look at that picture, it's their engagement photo and her essay is as F. It's great. So, mm. yeah, thank you for liking that. Yes. So the pictures that people chose and the bios that they wrote, and I told them, you know, let rip. No one's ever going to let you write a bio like this again. Yeah. So, <laughs> so people, And then to mm. match them up, and I didn't put the writers in alphabetical order. I sort of mm-hmm. did them in a way as if I was looking at this. Again, you can't shed the teacher bit. Like the essays I would clump together so that if, if people can read like two or three at a time, they'll echo each other sort of slightly and then move sort of into mm-hmm. another category so that if, if you have 15 minutes as opposed to five, you can see a couple of them on one topic uh, or not one topic, but that go together. That's- right, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's- and that, that's what makes it compulsively readable because you do, you just want to keep going. And uh, you, you talk about in your introduction about how women haven't been considered funny or humorous. And one of the essays deals with the topic of, humor in the Holocaust or the Me Too movement. And this is, I guess, kind of a two-part question, but can you talk about that, about gender and humor and then when a topic is ready to be
3: humorized? Yes, uh, absolutely. That's what I've spent sort of like the 35 years of my academic life doing, It's talking about the differences between men and women's humor. It was actually what my dissertation, so I can't even say the word, <laughs> <what> my dissertation <laughs> in graduate school was on hate and humor in women's novels my adored dissertation advisor who recently passed away, Gerhard Joseph, and again we spoke very frankly to one another. And he said, Gina, don't you think that if there had been like humor and comedy of women's writers, somebody else would have looked at that as a literary, you know, topic. And I was like, no. I, I looked you know, it's like, <laughs> ah, no one else has done it I'm gonna do it and so I took it like between my teeth and I've been carrying like a lioness carrying this carcass around with me for the last 35 years and now um there is uh actually quite a body of work on gender difference in humor. And I started the first book I ever did was called, they used to call me stoic, but I drifted. And um, that <laughs> became a bestseller back in 1991. And, and a lot of the other books um, have, you know, sort of followed behind that. And there are academic versions of it, a book called Last Laughs and New Perspectives on Women in Comedy. And so I, I followed up with the academic version, Untamed and Unabashed Essays on Women in Literature. But, There's a different way that women are funny. Women do not, for example, do the eye-poking, head-banging, butt-slamming humor that the Three Stooges that I grew up watching love. Men love the Three Stooges. The first thing that boys like did when they reached adolescence was to make the fart noise under the. Right. You <laughs> never see women greeting each other by doing it. We don't do it. You go <laughs> to a conference, you go to a meeting, you're at the you know women's movement uh, down in Washington. You do not, women going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't. don't do that. That's 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 not our way of bonding. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But it's not what we do, and since we don't do that for years we were told we don't have a sense of humor if women did not again, my adored husband at the first time when we were watching with his boys when they were still kids and we went blazing saddles which I love I love Mel Brooks and we could go back to the Ford Perlstein um, question about the because she's the one who wrote about the Holocaust and humor uh, for um, interviews Mel Brooks about the Holocaust and about his use of for example, you know Nazis in so many of his movies and why it was necessary to undercut these figures with humor. And so any outsider group does that to the powerful and women have always been a big outsider Group. We are the outsider group. Even if there were a lot of us, we're still the outsider group. So there I am watching the um, Blazing Saddles with Michael and the kids. And they get up to the fart scene in Blazing Saddles. And I don't know if you remember that magical moment in movie making history, but guys are eating beans, sitting around a campfire, and each one of the cowboys gets up and makes a fart noise. These intelligent, insightful, interesting, complex souls of men. They are laughing their tails off. And I say, I don't think that's funny. And my husband said, I'll rewind as if I had missed the subtle <laughs> <laughs> As if like I need to see it again because right. I, like, somehow didn't get. It's like I got it, I got it. I just don't think it's funny. And I think for five thousand years, when Og hit Glug on the head with a rock and then said, <laughs> and you know, Florg the girl said, "That's not funny." He hits him again to say, "Now you see that it's funny." And this is what we've been told our whole lives is that. This stuff is funny. And we're going, it's not fun for me. And it right. took a long time to have our perspective understood where um, women do not do certain kinds of humor typically. And that women's humor really is... Men's humor is about dressing in women's clothes and making noises. And women's humor is about the differences between the real and the unreal. You know, so they're a little bit, more subtle. You know, like, yeah, 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 you might say yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So to
3: go back to the idea about what Fern was doing, Fern Perlstein, who's in um, the book and talks about her film about uh, the Holocaust and about humor in actually concentration camps. So Fern found... Um, Two survivors of, I can't remember the camps now, they might have been Belsen. Belsen, they were, not that they were good camps, but these were women, two women who had survived the worst atrocities that you've been committed on other humans. And one woman was all about embracing the joys of life. You come through this, which she remembered from her days in the camp. I mean, with the misery and the abject torture and the death of people you loved every day was that they would, and that one way that... The Jewish communities inside this, inside the camp, were allowed to put on shows. The shows, the Nazis wouldn't understand, the SS guards, the the torturers wouldn't understand the subtle signals of sort of survival that these people were, the other survivors were transmitting to each other. And then the other woman, the other survivor, um, was talking about how she, she couldn't ever release that. And then Fernah had, she went around and interviewed Gilbert Gottlieb, she interviewed Mel Brooks, she interviewed every uh, stand up Jewish comic who was doing, Jewish, Silver, Sarah Silverman doing this and saying this, it's important because uh, it was Mark Twain's line that against the assault of humor, tyranny cannot stand. Mm-hmm. And again, when you think about the, the people who were in the concentration camps using. Humor and entertainment and song to fight their oppression, you can't help but think about African-American communities, slave communities in the U.S. You can't help but think um, about the ways that humor and the function of, in a way, the subversive nature of humor has also allowed groups of people who weren't allowed to communicate or interact officially to get their messages across to each other, that humor employs almost a kind of hieroglyph world that, you know, when people say you have to be there mm. right. or that's too long to explain, it's because you're not the insider in that group. Right. So Fern's article was fascinating about that. And then the same thing in terms of feminism, that, you know, my my version of feminism is that we have to be funny, that women have to learn to use humor. And that if somebody comes up, and says, you know, what's the matter, honey? Can't you take a joke? That the idea is to say, I'm talking to you. It's obvious I can take a joke, but then come up with <laughs> answers because we were all brought up to be good girls. Yeah. Even um, though we mm-hmm. were, some of us have um, have overthrown the the possibility of being that. But um, so that when one of my favorite lines is um, when it was uh, uh, Liz Carpenter who wrote a book called Ruffles and Flourishes about being the White House. Um, Uh, communication director at in the johnson white house so she was talking about how when her book ruffles and flourishes came out it became a bestseller and so she's at this big cocktail party and arthur schlesinger jr statesman and a writer in his own right comes up to her and in that just kidding kind of way that we all know says loved your book liz who wrote it for you oh now as a good girl, right, my first response is to go, ah, ah, I don't understand why you have to undermine everything. And then your voice goes up so high that only bats can hear you. you know? <laughs> uh, <that's a> rhetorical <laughs> strategy. But what Liz Carpenter does that made her my hero early on and that I, I want to promote is when Arthur Sessinger said, loved your book, Liz, who wrote it for you. She said, glad you liked it, Arthur, who read it to you.
0: <laughs> and, uh, I mean, Perfect. Just and then though, when that I, is that <laughs> is a fast funny woman, <laughs> you know. And
3: so, with, with permission to sort of get it right, and so there are a lot of essays in fast funny women that are really about finding that moment and finding your voice. And even for those of us who in some way have had the great privilege of being able to have our voice or feel not only have it, but feel like on occasion we can make ourselves heard and we could make others who don't have their voices heard. That is is—is part of our obligation um, to do that. But it's really good to know that you have a bunch of other broads behind you who have their voices. And again, they're coming at it from perspectives you might, might not have imagined, but they all bring their own strength to this. And uh, that's why it's it's been, it's a fortifying collection. I really think that. And and I chose the essays because of the strength that each of them have individually, but again, the collective nature of women's voices not They're not repeating the same stories. I have an older right. brother. And he said, you know, it's and, and again, this is his irony, but it's also the voice. He said, you know, reading all the essays, you almost think that there was more than one kind of woman. <laughs> I was like, yeah, can you put that on Amazon, please? Yeah. Up <laughs> on Amazon. That's my first review. All the same things, more than one kind of word. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, one of the things, just a line that I love from your intro, you say writing it down is the opposite of covering it up. And I just think that's such a strong statement and a great reason why. Every woman should pick up a pen and write.
3: And you know what? And we will always, as you know, we will find, you find your voice and you find what your story is once you start telling it. And once one word after another starts not to become the story you've dined out on, as the English would say, for the last 30 years, but when you start to tell the truth. And you know, we all know when that happens for real. You know, when you start to say, man, this happened to me. So I'm doing a new collection. Um, I'm hoping this went so well uh, that we're hoping to do one of these a year. And so I'm in the middle of getting essays for um, fast, fierce women, because it seems like this year people gathered their ferocity together. And like funny, fierce is another thing that good girls are not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And yet, as women, we know that it is the only way to survive. Um, and so those, those essays, um, again, some of them, I've seen Maureen Corrigan from NPR is writing one. Um, Caroline Levitt, who is a brilliant author is writing one. So they're, you know, it's, it's like stone soup. You remember the children's book, stone soup. So it's like, I'll put it in an onion. I have carrots. Nobody feels <laughs> they necessarily have anything, but then you put it in and it's this astonishing, sort of uh, nourishing, uh, substantial uh, uh, thing together. And then again, a lot of younger women who would not be heard, a lot of um, women of color uh, difference. And so that's coming together nicely. So that should be out for Women's History Month next year.
0: Oh, fantastic. And- so that's Febu- February, is that right? March. March, I should know that. No, that's March okay. of- March of 2022. Yes. 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 yes good. So. Good. Yeah. Well, we'll be here to help you promote that.
1: Yes,
3: Thank you so for much. <laughs> Thank you for, yeah. for actually, and for, you know, looking at the book, for holding up the book, you'll see that the cover. The cover, uh, I wanted to ask you about yeah. That. Yeah. Mimi Is that. Mimi Pond. That? Mimi Pond. Now, yeah. Mimi Pond, you will see um, Mimi Pond and Liza Donnelly are two staff cartoonists for the New Yorkers. So you've seen their work almost every week, one or the other, um, in the Covered the new yorker and so i said to mimi please could you do i mean and again you the the interesting part is that you can't i couldn't afford to pay her to do that so she did it for free because nice. that's how that's how we do things right Right. yeah like, right you can't yeah. do this so she so she did this and so the first the first cover she did was of this terrifying woman and like huge and and i was like oh, we're hoping to get this into the hands of women who might be afraid <laughs> and then they came up with medusa as you'll see on the cover it's the yeah. medusa but with all of the smiling snakes yeah yes. i'm gonna put it closer let's yeah. see you there That's yeah so
0: sweet i love That's awesome it. And yes. so
3: that you know the medusa is smiling Mm-hmm. And if the Medusa is turning your, you just own that's your problem, not her problem. It's your reaction <laughs> to her. You know, again, I think it's how we feel. You don't like this, that's your problem. Honey. Right. And, and back. And all mistakes are, again, they're all different kinds of women. Right. They're all different. And for Fast Fierce Women, we have a cover lined up, and it's by a young artist. And she's got women um, flying in different directions and they're holding babies under one arm and a sword in the other. And they're (laughs) holding brooms and pens and they're, you know, they're amazing. And again, it's, it's full of color. It's another. So I hope to, again, allow, you know, the artists will do each cover. Yeah. Each uh, version. That's great. Well,
0: we think people should buy this. We're going to put a link, um, down below in the video a link in our show notes and then also we'll have um, it on our bookshop.org page so people yes. can just go right there and and thank buy it. it it's really it'd be a great gift buy more than one hand it out at the local grocery store <laughs> it's really people should be reading this book so absolutely thank you thank Gina you
3: so kind and so and this was so much fun I can't believe like we're we're in our time this yeah was two girlfriends this is
0: <laughs> well we would love now that things are opening back up maybe we can get a chance to actually meet in person someday that would be so lovely we want to come to your bodega yes, yes we I'm, do yes, there, 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 in my room you know there's food
3: there you'll notice there is wine love <laughs> it. you know, all this stuff. it's here I also have a larger house where I can actually set food on a table <laughs> in my office, but it is possible, nice. <laughs> but it would be wonderful to to gather in person. I look forward, uh, you know. Just recently, just been, you know, emerging with hugs to and from people who have had their vaccines. As I've been lucky enough to yeah, have, yeah. you know, friends that we haven't seen in a while, and it's just. Yeah. Boy, I realize how much I miss. But laughing together in any venue just <laughs> yes. is better, Good. better the rest of the day. Absolutely. yeah. yeah Good for, for sure. the soul. Yeah. yeah. Well, Gina, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime.
1: Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.